Hello, this is clinical psychologist Peter Melinowski, and we are continuing our review and summary of Internal Family Systems Therapy, second edition by Richard Schwartz and Martha Sweezy, focusing now on chapter 20. Chapter 20, The Laws of Inner Physics. In this chapter, there are a whole range of topics that Dick and Martha address briefly. Very important information. And we're just going to hit the highlights of this chapter, the things that are most important. Now, one of the things that Richard Schwartz talks about a lot are these laws of inner physics. These are organizing principles that he has discovered within the human psyche. And these are consistent from person to person, they are reliable, and they focus and guide the work of IFS therapy. A lot of review in this chapter, some of these things you will have read or heard before, but parts, Dick Schwartz is very emphatic about this, they are not metaphors, they're not fantasies, they're not merely ego states, they're not just transient thoughts or impulses. He considers them to be inner beings with full personalities. They have their own emotions, their own thoughts, their own ways of operating. And sometimes they appear initially as not even human. They might appear as an animal or a spiritual being or some inanimate object, all kinds of ways of presentation. Often, the presentation is how the part sees itself or how the part has been seen by other parts within the client's system. We're going to emphasize again in this chapter that parts are not their burdens. It's a very common mistake. Schwartz discusses again in this chapter how many psychotherapies and many religious or spiritual systems have pathologized parts, too closely identifying parts with their burdens, not making that critical distinction. And he discusses how certain Theories of trauma have seen parts as being generated by traumatic experiences. The product of the splintered mind or fragmentation. This is very common in conceptualizing dissociative identity disorder, that these parts came into existence because of the trauma rather than being present at birth which is how Dick Schwartz understands parts' existence as having always been there. In this section, he gets into a little more depth about how parts can lie dormant or how they can be in an embryonic state, not fully developed yet because it's just too early in the person's life. And so we might see parts emerge in a sense in certain situations, including traumatic situations, but that doesn't mean that they weren't there before. The bottom line on this is that traumatic events or any events, do not create or destroy parts. It also has implications for treatment because for so long, so many treatments for multiple personality disorder or now dissociative identity disorder were all about trying to bring the, quote, alters or identities together into one homogenous personality. Again, that's diametrically opposed to how IFS operates, right, with an appreciation for the parts in their individuality. Parts communicate through emotions, sensations, images, dreams, thoughts, impulses. All of those things can come from parts, and that's how parts often communicate. Parts usually have some preferred way of expressing themselves, some way of making themselves known. I think of this as their tells, the ways that they tell us that they're in distress or tell us that they need something. 
He makes this interesting statement that what we call thinking is likely to be our overhearing an inner conversation or debate between parts. That's a quote from page 268 at the top. He goes into another discussion of exiling parts. When that happens, when protector parts are threatened by the burdens that exiles carry. And he makes this really important point that even when parts are exiled, they still exert enormous influence over body, dreams, mood, choices, and decisions. This influence is often out of awareness and it's always indirect, but it's really still powerful. Protectors never are able to hermetically seal off exiled parts so that there's no influence on the system anymore. It never is that complete. Managers can also exile other protectors. And this is an interesting point, one that I don't know that he made elsewhere in the book, because they're threatened by those other protectors' actions, especially protectors who are assertive or who are angry or who in some other way threatened powerful family members, people that we needed to keep engaged with. Those protectors can also be exiled. And so he distinguishes exiles that are the vulnerable hurt parts from the protectors who are more extreme, he calls the those latter that latter group the exiled protectors. Now Dick and Martha emphasize again in this chapter that when parts have the opportunity to unburden, whether they're exiles or whether they're protectors, they can go back to their naturally valuable states. And that brings up these qualities like liveliness, playfulness, humor, creativity, all kinds of wonderful things that parts can now bring forth because they have the freedom to operate in a system that's governed by the self. When we look at what happens when parts are exiled, some exiled parts will take revenge on the body when and have this effect of what Dick and Martha say, poisoning the whole inner system. When all parts are accepted, when they've all been unburdened, when they all feel connected both to the self and to each other, they've gotten these roles that they delight in, that they're comfortable with, that, they, that are satisfying to them. There's peace and harmony in the system. There's this integration. Then the inner system is basically healthy. Then the inner system is basically whole. However, when there are burden parts, when there are parts that are exiled, when there are polarizations, then that compromises the capacity of parts to live in this fully realized way. An interesting point he makes on page 269 is that managers sometimes will switch to more typical firefighter tactics, such as dissociation, substance abuse, and rage, when other more common methods no longer seem effective. The reason for that is managers are preemptive in their suppressing of exiles. They want to stay ahead of the curve. Firefighting parts are reactive. Managers are proactive. They're preemptive. They want to get ahead of the curve. They want to reduce the risk of being overwhelmed by the exiles before that starts happening. And so sometimes they will use firefighter type of actions to preemptively disable exiles' capacity to blend and take over the system. Dick and Martha mention a hierarchy of firefighter options, including 
the lowest rungs, the most mild types of interventions or the most mild types of signals of distress, all the way up the chain to suicide at the top. Dick and Martha note that suicide has this promise of, quote, complete escape and relief, end quote. And that can be a real comfort. At least the hope that that could be true is often a real comfort for protective parts, especially firefighters. One thing that I think is important clinically is to not take the option of suicide off the table. I'm not a huge fan of suicide contracts, for example, because it can seem like the clinician is actually much more worried about legal and liability concerns than the suffering in the client's system that can be seen as very off-putting. It can seem very unattuned to parts who are really desperate. In this chapter, Dick and Martha discuss how there is no need to teach grounding or affect regulation skills to parts. And this is one of the most difficult tenants of IFS, I think, for many trauma therapists to grip onto and hold onto. So many trauma therapies include some kind of grounding or affect regulation, some kind of way of calming the system down through alternative tapping or uh, different types of exercises to focus attention, to reduce dissociation, and so forth. This is really one of the most radical ideas, I think, of IFS compared to other trauma methodologies. Dick and Martha say that if protectors are treated with respect, if they're invited to participate in the process, if we get their buy-in, if they say yes, if they see that the therapy is likely to be successful and that the risk of being overwhelmed by the intensity of exile's experience is minimized, then they will calm down. I think so many different trauma methodologies really don't ask the question of where does all this intensity come from? Why is there a need for grounding? Why is there a need for affect regulation? It's sort of like it springs up out of the either or something like that. It just seems disconnected. There's not a serious understanding of where that comes from. It's just treated as dysregulation, something to be gotten rid of so that you can get to doing the real work. And the problem with this is that when parts are distressed and they're causing the dysregulation, when they're bringing up the intensity of the affect or the dissociation or whatever the symptoms happen to be that are taking the client out of a window of tolerance, In those situations, we need to be paying attention to those protectors' concerns. Those types of intense experiences are signaling distress in parts. And Dick and Martha are very adamant that we get to that distress, we address those concerns first, and then things calm down. We we don't need to align ourselves with the client's parts that want to suppress these other parts and not give them a voice. Dick and Martha argue that the self has a huge window of tolerance. If a person is really in self, relatively unblended, it can tolerate intense amounts of affect from the client's parts, be they exiles or protectors. The self can also ask exiles not to overwhelm. And when exiles agree, 
they don't overwhelm. That's been Dick Schwartz's experience. That's also been my experience. When parts believe that it's in their best interest to work cooperatively and collaboratively with the other parts under the governance of the self within a client system, they settle down. Parts need to come to believe that unblending from the self and letting the self lead and guide is the best course of action. Often they're desperate though, and they know at some level that their tremendous efforts haven't been successful in the past. So there's often more of an openness to letting the self lead than may initially meet the eye. Dick and Martha discuss how parts have direct and indirect impact on bodily processes. Bessel van der Kolk, in his classic trauma book, The Body Keeps the Score, brought this out beautifully. Parts have the power to create or amplify all kinds of bodily symptoms. These can be medical conditions. These can also be things that are more purely psychosomatic. And because that's the case, if they believe that to back off of that's helpful, to ease up on that's helpful, they will also do that. Now, that doesn't mean that parts have total control over the body. There are obviously things that are biologically mediated in such a way that it can just be healed or fixed if parts unblend. But it's amazing how much, it's amazing how much bodily suffering can be alleviated when parts are actually calm and connected, integrated in, in a collaborative and cooperative way with the client system. Dick and Martha talk about nested systems where parts have their own parts or subparts, if you will. He also makes an, a statement that parts also have their own selves. He doesn't elaborate much on that in this chapter, but he makes the argument that parts are actually very complete systems within themselves. From there, Martha and Dick discuss how trauma can freeze parts at particular moments in the past, and that part of the clinical work is retrieving these parts to the present, helping them reconnect, updating them with what's happened in in the interim from when they originally experienced the trauma and took on their burdens. And so the whole concept of time is so important in IFS work, recognizing that parts are often frozen at the age at which the trauma happened and they took on the burden. Under the section titled Polarizations, Dick and Martha talk about how the self of the child is not yet empowered to protect the entire system because the body of the child is not mature, the brain is not mature, and the child is existentially dependent on adults. And so therefore, parts can be forced into extreme roles in order to protect the self. And the child's life can be run by young managers who just don't have the equipment, the cognitive or emotional capacities to govern like the self would be able to. Dick and Martha talk about the sequence for healing. Some trauma therapies tend to go immediately for the exiled 
material, what we would think of as the burdens or the burden parts. And they do whatever grounding or affect regulation they need to do to get there. We take it slower in IFS. We really want to bring in the support and the at least grudging tolerance of the protectors. We need to bring the protectors on board, have their buy-in, have their support for the work, or we don't go further. And that may seem slower initially, but in the long run, it becomes much, much faster because you're working with the whole system in a collaborative and cooperative way. And Dick and Martha argue that when protectors, be they managers or firefighters, when they believe that working cooperatively and, and, and collaboratively, unblending so that the self can lead, when they believe that that's more effective, they will do it. It's important to remember that there's an order in which we meet the needs of different parts. We can't just start with the XLs. We have to meet the needs of the protectors first in order to have access to those XLs in a way that's safe and good for the entire system. Remember that protectors are also burdened. They're not burdened in the same way as XLs are, but they carry their own burdens because they are burdened by their roles. They're burdened by their perceived need to suppress or deny or repress exiles. Remember, there's two kinds of burdens. There's personal burdens, and these are generated by what the person actually experiences in life. And then there's also legacy burdens. And legacy burdens are absorbed in terms of the beliefs, emotions, or experiences that are passed down through families or through ethnic groups or through the culture. Dick and Martha remind us that, begin quote, everything around unburdening is negotiable, end quote. I really appreciate the flexibility in the way that we can go about unburdening. There's so many different ways that we can negotiate with parts. This is one of the ways in which there's a real art to IFS therapy recognizing the principles. We're not just following a manual, but still there's very clear guidance. There's very clear principles about how unburdening works. Parts may be willing to put their burdens in a lidded container rather than just give them up. They may want to keep them close at hand, but more contained just to try out what it's like to not be carrying the burden before they choose to give it up. They can also unburden partially. They can give up sometimes even 5% or 10% of a burden. We also need to work with parts just to help them discern what's their burden and what might be the burden of another part. Dick and Martha reveal six major reasons why burdens can return after an initial unburdening. The first is that the part wasn't fully witnessed. The second was that the part felt abandoned by the self in the days following the unburdening, so there wasn't like a follow-up there. The third reason is that some protectors were threatened by the unburdening and for their own protective reasons brought the burden back. The fourth is that other parts may carry the same burden and need an opportunity to be witnessed and unburdened as well. The fifth is that something something frightening may have happened in the period immediately after the unburdening, and there may be some kind of faulty cause-effect relationship attributed to that scary event, and so the burden came back. Or 
Sixth, there could also be a legacy burden that is still remaining even after the personal burden has been given up. After unburdening, parts almost always feel more spacious. They feel lighter. They feel more expansive. They feel more solid. They feel more alive. They feel more full. These are characteristics when parts, this is when parts are unburdened. There's the sense of freedom when parts are unburdened. Sometimes giving up legacy burdens can be difficult because of loyalties to particular family members or to ethnic groups or to religious groups or other groups. So that that might have to be worked through with parts. Dick and Martha reiterate a central tenet of IFS, and that is that the self cannot be damaged and it doesn't need to develop. Dick argues that the only ones that he has had difficulty doing IFS effectively with are those with severe brain damage, and that may be because a certain amount of just hardware needs to be in place for the self to be able to manifest itself for the self to be able to function adequately. There's a brief paragraph on MDMA, which is known on the street as ecstasy and the possibilities for this drug to enhance the capacity for clients to access self in the very beginning stages of work with that. Even with MDMA-assisted therapy, though, we want to work with the cooperation and the collaboration of parts. It's not a magic bullet that would allow us to override parts or to move forward without their consent. There's a reiteration in this chapter about how the self has the innate wisdom to know how to connect with the parts and to know how to connect with other people in ways that allow the other to feel seen, heard, embraced, nurtured, loved, protected, and sometimes contained and challenged, right? There's a way that there can be this correction or gentle challenging that also is coming from a position of care and kindness. When a client gets stuck and says something like, I just don't know how to help within the process of IFS. We know they're in a part and we can just ask that part to step back and give room for the self to come forward because the self will know what to do. A huge benefit of IFS work is that new internal attachments seem to be developed much more rapidly than attachments in the external world, attachments with other people. And I have seen that clinically as well over and over again. Each client will have a way of each client will have a way of experiencing being in self. That's often multimodal. There's a different, again, tells or different signs that a given client is in self. They may have a particular feeling or emotion or body sensation or a kind of clarity of thought. There's 
different physiological aspects to this. You might notice changes in breathing and voice and the way that they move and use their body, different ways of noticing that one's in self because of the patterns of thinking, a big open heart in terms of emotions towards other people, an openness to understanding, a receptivity to others' experience. There's lots of ways in which one can identify oneself as being in self. And those will become more familiar to your clients and to you as you are in self more and more frequently. Remember that self-energy is contagious, right? So when one person's in self, it pulls for self and the other person. And conversely, when one person's in an extreme part, it will pull for, an ex- for a similar part in another person to come forward or perhaps the opposite effect, a polarized part might come forward in the other person. Martha and Dick reiterate that the self can handle anything in the person's internal world. And so when there's scary parts that come up for trauma survivors, Dick will say, quote, nothing inside has power over you when you are not afraid of it and yourself will not be afraid, end quote. Very powerful information, a very powerful position. Dick argues that the self can actually not be seen. So if if an entity that identifies itself as the self appears in the cast of characters in a person's internal scene, that's actually not the self. It's probably a self-like manager part. The self cannot be seen. As we become more and more in self, we welcome triggering events. We welcome events that bring up things within us that need to be resolved, we appreciate that, it's actually a gift because it signals where we need to be focusing the work in our natural human formation. When we're in self, we have compassion rather than contempt for those who perpetrate violence, for those who harm others. We recognize that we are connected to them through them having a self and us having a self. In an interesting description, Martha and Dick describe how the self has a, quote, agenda-free agenda, end quote. And they describe this as having a desire for balance, harmony, and connectedness and healing for all levels of all systems, both within myself and outside myself. But the self is not attached to making those things happen. The self recognizes the limitations it has, and that it can't force others to be in self or to heal. Well, with that, we have come to the end of chapter 20 and the end of the lectures for this book. It has been an honor and a privilege to walk with you through these concepts of IFS. Thank you for your attention, and I wish you the best in your IFS journey.